Uh, so we had some technical difficulties. But it's probably exhausting for him at his age to still have to be the primary defender, ball handler. Well, not defender. He hasn't been the primary defender for years. But the primary scorer, ball handler, facilitator. Like He's over 35 years old playing over 40 minutes a game. Meanwhile, his 30-year-old partner is playing less than 35 minutes a game. That just should not be how it is. And it would be a lot easier for him to prolong his career if he didn't have to do that. So props to him, but I really hope that for his the sake of his longevity, I had 21 seasons, he's already done a good job longevity-wise, but to see how long he can milk his career for, it would be good if his teammates could chip in more and take some of the slack off of him and he not have to be the main engine that drives the car at this point. Now, speaking of people who aren't as good as LeBron and who don't seem to have the engine that he does, Damian Lillard has been pretty streaky with the Bucks. He got off to a hot start in their first game, which we covered last week, but then apparently I sold the Hawks short because they managed to beat the Bucks, and like I referenced earlier, they're actually at the top of the Southeastern Conference in the East. So, hey, fly dirty birds. But the Bucks have been streaky the last week. Uh, the Hawks held Dame to six points on 16% shooting and only five assists. And reading that stat line really made me uh, think back to a moment in time from another NBA legend's career. And it reinforced the point to me, which is that a big problem, and I know me and Levi have talked before on here about whether a point guard's primary job should be to facilitate or to score. And I've said many times I'm a big fan of the old school style of point guard who looks to facilitate first and score second. That's not to say that scoring is not a valuable asset for a point guard to have, but that it should be their backup and not their primary objective when they get the ball across half court. Now, the what's the word? The side effect of having a whole generation of point guards, and really this applies to players in general, not just point guards, but players who all grew up playing ISO ball who are always looking to score when they get the ball and they focus all of their effort on scoring are not well-rounded. In fact, they're very one-dimensional. And when their one dimension is not working, they really can't impact the game in too many other ways, which is what sets the all-time greats apart from the good players. That's what makes LeBron able to last 21 years is the fact that he can impact the game in so many different ways. He can rebound, he can pass, he can score. And when he was younger, he could play defense. But when you take somebody like Damian Lillard, who is just a walking bucket, and that's what he does. He wakes up, he gets out of bed in the morning, he gets buckets. He goes after lunch, he gets a one-hour work break, he gets buckets. That's just that's what he does. He puts it on his W-2, I get buckets. But when the shots aren't falling, and he's not getting buckets, he's shooting 16%, he really doesn't have a second option. He doesn't have another tool in his kit that he can go to. And 
I say that to bring up something that happened early on in Larry Bird's career that a lot of people try when they talk about the all-time greats discussion. They use it as a knock against him, but I actually think it's a positive fact. So in the 1981 NBA Finals, Larry Bird, he got his first ring, but he was not Finals MVP because on the whole, by his standards, he did not have a very good series. It was a six-game series, and for three of those games, he had a stretch where he scored eight points in two games, and the third game he scored 12. So I mean, those are pretty bad Damian Lillard-level numbers, which Damian Lillard from the game against the Hawks. Like that's comparably bad, but whereas Dame only got five assists and maybe like one or two rebounds, Larry Bird was able to impact the game in multiple different ways. And he had 10 assists the first game. He had seven assists and eight assists the next two games. Then he had 13, 12, and 12 were his rebound stats. And he also had five steals in the first game. So even though he wasn't scoring the ball, he was still facilitating. He was still grabbing boards. And at least in the first game, he was a defensive juggernaut. Five steals, for those of you who don't follow basketball that much, that is like all-time great level standards. Let me just look up real quick what the record for steals. So that's halfway almost to the record of steals in one game. The average NBA player scores about or gets about two steals a game. So for him to get five in one game, that's very impressive. So when Larry Bird's shot wasn't falling, he had other options in his arsenal that he could use to facilitate the game. And that's one thing that a lot of coaches these days don't really push that I think is a valuable thing to know. When your shot's not falling, you'll have a lot of people tell you, you know, just keep shooting. Eventually it'll hit. But at least to me, that's just dumb. I mean, I agree with it from a general standpoint, like for a career, like if you're having one bad game, that doesn't mean that you should quit shooting, period, like in the next game. But some days it's just not your day. And self-awareness in life is just a very, very good trait to have. And in an athletic standpoint, it's good to know when it's not your night. And when you're shooting 16% from the field for and you play the entire game, it's not your night, and you need to find other ways to make an impact. And if there's no other way you can make an impact on the game aside from scoring and your shot's not falling, then this is a bold move, but you should probably go sit on the bench if you can't positively impact the game. Because shooting six points or scoring six points on 16% shooting that's not going to cut it, and there's probably a bench player who could at least put up a comparable stat line and, you know, get some minutes, get a chance to show off what he's got going on. But that's just a long-winded way of saying a lot of players these days focus so much on one skill that when that, for whatever reason, is not working out for them in a game, they have no other options to turn to. They double down, and that's how you get somebody shooting 16% from the field. 
And it's not like he just quit shooting and was like, I don't know, two for seven. Like, he shot a lot of shots. But coaches really need to work on developing an all-around game and not letting players specialize, at least until they get to college. Now, it wasn't just Dane's fault that the Bucks have been streaky. Giannis has been struggling, too. Uh, against the Raptors, he got held to 16 on 45% shooting. And so they just need to find a way to get their chemistry to click. And hopefully going forward, they can be that dominant team that I alluded to them as being earlier. Now, the quick news that is a big topic, but it's not worth having a whole segment, is that Jason Tatum has become the youngest player in NBA history to get 10,000 points. There's not really uh, much other to say there than congratulations, Jason Tatum. And he continues to be one of the rising stars in the league, one of easily the next superstars of the generation coming up. I think he'll be a champion one day. I think he'll be an MVP one day. And I see nothing but good things coming his way short of an injury just because he actually – does have that will to win, that desire, those intangibles that you can just clearly see come across when you watch Jason Tatum play. I mean, as a second-year player, he may have even been a rookie, he took LeBron to seven in the conference finals as the leader of the team because Kyrie Irving was out. So since day one, essentially, he's been showing that he has the leadership He has a skill set to be a next-level superstar, and him being the youngest at 10,000 points is really just a side effect of that. I expect him to continue that pace and to continue to break milestones for his age up until he gets to his mid-30s and kind of plateaus out. But I think the ceiling for Jason Tatum is he could end up being one of those, like, around top 20, 25-ish players, like somewhere in the Dwayne Wade range. I th- I don't think – if I had to guess, he will not pass Dwayne Wade all the time. But I think he's somewhere around that pool. And I can't wait to see what the future has in store for him. Now, somebody else with a lot of upside is Big Vic. I refuse to call him Wimby. That is the worst NBA nickname this side of Durantula. But that is what the NBA media and sports media have taken to calling him. To me and Levi, he will always be Big Vic. But a lot's been being made about his first five games because he's finally five games into his NBA career. And I don't want to come off as a Victor Webinyama hater because... I really am impressed by what he's been able to do in his first five games. He's had one of the best rookie campaigns that I can remember, and some websites are saying the best since LeBron. I haven't fact-checked that. It very well could be. But if you look up just Victor Webinyama, all of the news covering him has been just like gushing, glowing, He's having a phenomenal 
rookie season so far. He's proving he's everything we thought he would be and more, like, pump the brakes. The reason I say that is because if you just look at his overall stats, it's very misleading, and which is why a lot of people love to say, you know, numbers don't lie. Numbers can lie if, depending on how you choose to look at them. Because if you just look at his overall stats, he's averaging 20 points a game, one assist, and eight rebounds a game on 50% shooting. That is more than good for a rookie, especially like a 19-year-old. That being said, he has been insanely streaky. So he's averaging 20, but it's not like he's putting up 20 points every night. He's putting up 11 points one night, 38 the next. Like, he's all over the place, and it averages out to 20. But he has, like, to me, he's kind of like how Dame lived in the Bucks have been. He's just been super streaky, which is to be expected. He's 19 years old. He's a rookie. He doesn't, he's not used to the NBA pace of play yet, the NBA culture, the lifestyle. So, of course, he'll have an adjustment period. And I just think it's disingenuous to cover his first five games in these glowing terms just because you want him to be the next big thing and you're trying to make him a potential future face of the league just because he is a 7-4 unicorn that is a a once-in-a-lifetime talent. I I get all that. But you can still be objective about what he has done so far because what he's done is perfectly normal. He's had a good first five games. Are they great? No. It's shown signs of greatness, but he's not already the greatest rookie of the 21st century. He may not even be the greatest rookie since LeBron. He's only played five games, but he has been impressive when he's good. And when he's not good or not, when he's having down games, he's been subpar. I mean, I covered it last week. He had one game where he was 0 from 6 from the three-point line and scored 11 points. I mean, he had another game where he only got five rebounds, which if you're seven foot four, he's had two games actually where he's had five rebounds. If you're seven foot four, you should never have less than seven rebounds in a game. So that to me is the biggest thing he needs to work on is finding a way and I've harped on it before, but he needs to bulk up. You know, he's in one of the best systems as far as building young talent there is with the Spurs. They need to get him a trainer, a Tim Grover level trainer. Get him a workout plan, let that kid eat, and develop him into a player who can grab boards and bang down low. His shooting is 50%, so I mean he's solid. And when he's scoring 38 points a game, he's showing you how high his upside is. But let's not pretend like the 11 or the 15.9s haven't been there too. And 15 points is still darn good for a rookie. But, like I said, like I, I'm really impressed by what I've seen out of him so far. I think he's got a lot of obvious, I don't want to say weak points, but just places he needs to work on. And 
I wish the media that covers sports would be a little bit more transparent with that instead of trying to just slap 20 points a game and act like he didn't average or didn't drop 11 on 0 from 6 from the three-point line last week. But the Spurs are 3-2, and and I see good things in his future, once again, if he can not get injured. Now, final point of the week is WWE just had their crown jewel pay-per-view, their second show from Saudi Arabia this year. And the two biggest takeaways are, one, Roman Reigns beat LA Knight, which everybody knew that he would. Roman Reigns is not losing that championship on a show that's not WrestleMania. Now, it might be this WrestleMania. It could be five WrestleManias from now at the rate they've been keeping the championship on him. But he's not losing in a non-WrestleMania show. End of story. That being said, they really could have done the finish to the LA Knight match better instead of doing all of the shenanigans that they did do, just have him get beaten clean after putting up a good fight. I think it is wrong to think in pro wrestling that just because you lose clean means that all of a sudden you suck and you can't regain your momentum. I think if you have him take Roman Reigns to the absolute limit and he comes this close, but Roman Reigns just pulls it out and gets it done, then that really makes LA Knight look strong and shows why Roman Reigns has been the champ for three plus years. There's a tendency with heel champions to make them always cheat to win. And I think that if you're a certain type of heel, if you're like The Miz or Ric Flair, then sure, cheat to win, like be the dirtiest player in the game, do that. But if you're a heel like Roman Reigns, who just by the look of him, he needs to be the dominant, bruising, brawler, beat the crap out of you heel, then he shouldn't be the type of heel that cheats to win all the time. He should be the heel that everybody wants to lose, but he's so dominant of a physical force that it takes somebody special to beat him. And LA Knight pushing him to the limit and then losing to a dominant heel champion, I think would have been a great story, but they haven't built Roman Reigns up to be that dominant, win, clean heel that I think he should be. And so it means they have to find a way to let Roman win and let LA Knight not lose clean, which I disagree with, but it is what it is. Now, somebody else who lost, and I disagree with how it went about, was John Cena. John Cena has not won a singles match in WWE in five years. I think that is ridiculous. And it shows just how much of a team player John Cena is that he allows that to happen because there is no way Hulk Hogan or Stone Cold Steve Austin or Triple H or any of the other all-time greats would be so generous with who they let beat them. And that's both a good thing and a bad thing. On the one hand, John Cena, one of the reasons he hasn't 
won a singles match in five years is because he hasn't been around much. He's been in Hollywood. So he comes back, he wrestles one, maybe two or three times a year, and that's it. So when they have him back, they want to use him to hype up their young talent and to make their young stars look good, which I think is admirable, but you have to do it the right way. Because if John Cena, if every time he comes back, he puts over some young new star, it ends up becoming meaningless when those stars don't do anything after beating him. In WrestleMania this year, he came back and he put over Austin Theory, who has done basically nothing since then to capitalize on beating John Cena. John Cena should only put over young stars that WWE actually has a plan in store for and actually plans on building up as a star. Otherwise, it devalues a win over John Cena. It's kind of like when Chris Jericho at WrestleMania 29, he was supposed to wrestle, I think it was Ryback. There was somebody he was supposed to wrestle, and plans got changed, and instead he put over Fondango who, if you don't remember who Fondango was, he was a ballroom dancer gimmick. And that didn't make Fondango look strong. It made Chris Jericho look weak. And it made it a lot less valuable to beat Chris Jericho because, like, wait, if Fondango could beat him, who, who can't beat Chris Jericho? And it's sad to see John Cena getting to that point where he's putting over people who aren't up-and-coming stars, but instead are Austin Theory and people like that. Now, Solo Sokoa, which is who he lost to, I think does have the potential to be a a next big thing, an upcoming star. But I guess it's just contingent upon the fact that he just lost to Austin Theory. John Cena needs to beat somebody in his next match or else he's just a jobber with a very 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 big cachet because of what he did five to fifteen years ago and if you're a young fan who always hears about john cena but every time you actually see him wrestle he gets beat then it really doesn't mean much to you when he does put somebody over because it's what you expect Putting people over only works when it's rare and you put over somebody who's deserving. So as much as it's cool to see John Cena be a team player and put over all these young guys, I wish he would be more selective in who he gave that rub to so as not to devalue the rub when he does give it out. Now, on to WWE's next pay-per-view. They've announced that at Survivor Series, War Games will be returning. And that they haven't announced this, but I think the main event will be the Bloodline plus a member of the Judgment Day, either Damian Priest or Finn Balor, against Cody Rhodes, Jey Uso, Kevin Owens, and Sami Zayn. Or at least that's what the main event should be. Now, there have been rumors that Roman Reigns won't be at Survivor Series, which is stupid if it is true. Now, I'm all for not overexposing your main champion and putting him on TV every week, 
just because it makes him feel more special when he doesn't show up or when he does show up. But Survivor Series, at least historically, is one of WWE's biggest shows of the year. So for him to not be there, it's just telling one to see how far Survivor Series has fallen, but also show just how much of a part-timer Roman Reigns really is. Now, either way, I think they should do the Bloodline main event. And if Roman Reigns isn't there, add in Finn Balor and Damian Priest. But it would just make so much more sense from a story perspective to have Roman Reigns there. You can tease him and Cody Rhodes. Obviously, uh, either the Bloodline wins or somebody else takes the fall. You're not going to pin Roman Reigns. But I think that match has a lot more cachet if Roman Reigns is there. And with that being said, that is what I've got for you this week. Be sure to tune in next week and try to keep up with sports in the meantime. I'm excited to see what the March to the college football playoffs has in store. And maybe the NBA in-season tournament isn't as stupid as I think it will be. Time will tell. But I will see you next week to give you the latest on that. See you.